Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're going to explore the drivers and significance of China's wolf warrior diplomacy. From accusing the United States Army of deliberately spreading COVID-19 to storming out of multilateral meetings such as the Pacific Islands Forum in 2018, China's diplomats have adopted a more confrontational approach to international affairs in recent years, and that has been labeled by many wolf warrior diplomacy. The term comes from a 2017 movie called Wolf Warrior Two, an action film with the tagline. Even though a thousand miles away, anyone who affronts China will pay. China's new diplomats or wolf warriors have used tougher language and become more aggressive in asserting China's interests. This new tone, while applauded in China, has been met with derision by many countries around the world who view Beijing as resorting to bullying to achieve its goals. To discuss the origins of wolf warrior diplomacy and the objectives of Chinese diplomats. I'm joined by Peter Martin. Peter is a political reporter for Bloomberg News, and he's written extensively about China and U.S.-China relations. His latest book is China's Civilian Army: The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, and it will be published in April by Oxford University Press. And hope that all of our listeners will order it on Amazon. <laughs> so, Peter, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, I want to start with a basic question. Why is diplomacy important in global politics? It's one of the core elements of of any country's power. You know, we often look more at military and economic measures of power because they're a little bit easier to measure. But diplomacy is is really the art of persuading others that it's in their best interest to accept your position on something. And as the world becomes more multipolar and leaderless. It's increasingly important that countries are able to do well at that art of persuasion. So, in the book, you trace the roots of what is today called wolf warrior diplomacy to the early days of the People's Republic, and you describe how the Chinese Communist Party was resolved to overcome its century of humiliation and actually instructed its diplomats to be tough. So, can you talk a little bit about that, and particularly the role of、uh, Premier Zhou Enlai, who is the founding father of modern Chinese diplomacy? So, I mean, it's it's really striking, actually, for a country that's gone through such incredible change from 1949 to now, moving from centralized communist state through to capitalist reforms and and everything in between. It's striking how much continuity there has been with Chinese diplomacy. And I think that the reason for that is that the core challenge that exists for China in putting together a diplomatic core is very similar now to the challenge that existed in 1949. So Zhou Enlai, China's first foreign minister, basically inherited no foreign ministry. They kicked out all the KMT diplomats who had stayed behind after the revolution and started anew with this kind of ragtag group of peasant revolutionaries. Who definitely didn't know anything about how to conduct international diplomacy, and they also had to go and interface with an outside world that was very skeptical of them. That required an openness that was very difficult for a closed and paranoid political system. So Zhou Enlai said to these recruits, "Listen, you you've fought and you fought for the party. So as diplomats, I want you to act like the People's Liberation Army in civilian clothing. Be totally loyal to the party and have a fighting spirit. And that that ethos." 
was laid down in 49 and it continues till today. So Chinese diplomats often say that the public in China demands that the foreign ministry defend the interests of the country. And I remember, you know, decades ago when people in China would tell me that members of the public were sending calcium pills to the foreign ministry, sending them a message that they should stiffen their spine in the face of foreign pressure. And, you know, I often thought that even if that was true, it's just sort of convenient way of trying to tell other countries that they're just defending their interests and they're responding to the demands of their public. But of course, China isn't a democracy. So, um, but you do state in your book that Chinese diplomats fear public reaction. So what's your view of the role of public opinion in this? Is this really a major driver or is it just a justification? Good question. I think it's it's evolved over time. And you're definitely right that there is an advantage in negotiations to saying, well, our hands are tied. You know, we wish we could make concessions, but the public won't allow us. But when you when you talk to Chinese diplomats and you you look through their memoirs, you do get this sense that the fear of public retribution is quite palpable. And I guess what drives that and what drove that, especially in the 1990s and the 2000s, was the idea that the public was more nationalist than the government. And that ultimately, if if Chinese diplomats in particular made too many concessions or appeared soft when dealing with Japan or the United States, that there would be blowback for the party. What I think has changed a little bit under Xi Jinping is that it's quite difficult now to see very much light between the Communist Party's position, the foreign ministry's position, and that of the Chinese public. You know, like the the Global Times editorial page is many days pretty interchangeable with the foreign ministry spokesperson's statements. So I think that that kind of nationalism has gone much more mainstream under Xi Jinping. But definitely this, this idea that the public demands, you know, a tough stance from the government still continues to influence things. What's the reaction of the Chinese foreign ministry to this label wolf warrior diplomacy? Yeah, they really dislike it. (laughs) They think that it's another reflection of the West's double standards when it comes to judging China. You know, if you look at some of the commentaries now, former Secretary of State Pompeo was often, you know, singled out as, well, if Pompeo is not a wolf warrior, then, then who is? So there's some frustration, but I think ultimately, a lot of Chinese diplomats agree that it was necessary for the country to adopt a a different approach. And they don't like being called names over it. But yeah, they think that the approach had to shift. Is there any evidence that diplomats are being rewarded for being especially aggressive? And are people being put in very public propaganda and, and information positions like the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman. We know, for example, Zhao Lijian, who I believe was uh, serving as a diplomat in Pakistan and then was brought to Beijing. I mean, are the Chinese looking to hire people who are engaging in this wolf warrior behavior on social media? Are they putting them in these very public positions and then trying to reward that behavior by giving people promotions? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what's going on is this kind of... um... Xi Jinping sets the tone in a very broad sense. And then people who make decisions about promotions and about messaging in the foreign ministry try to guess how they can best match that. But I think that there are, you know, you mentioned Zhao Lijian, there are a couple of other appointments that I think suggest that the human resources side of the foreign ministry is rewarding that kind of behavior. You know, Hua Chunying, 
became uh, head of the information department. And during my time as a journalist in Beijing, she was before Zhao's appointment, by far the most outspoken and strident of the foreign ministry spokespeople and was ultimately made head of that department. The other appointment that I think was notable around the same time, sort of summer 2019, was Lu Xiaoye, who was the ambassador to Canada and was then subsequently made ambassador to France, which you might think of as roughly equivalent, but as a P5 country, I think inside the Chinese system, France is seen as a promotion from Canada. So those things suggest to me that there are certainly no negative consequences to this behavior and there may be significant upside. I wonder if you have been able to find any evidence in doing your research on the book, whether this very aggressive diplomacy is being directed from the very top. You know, do we know if Xi Jinping has provided explicit instructions that diplomats have to be very tough and even obnoxious in defending Chinese interests? I think it's pretty clear that a lot of the behavior we've seen has been in response to the tone that Xi Jinping has, has set. There was this assertive turn in Chinese foreign policy, which really dates to the financial crisis and then accelerated under Xi. But I think the behavior of Chinese diplomats in particular has shifted quite markedly since he came to power. In fact, but, you know, before Xi became general secretary of the Communist Party, he as vice president did this tour of Chinese embassies around the world in which Xi made repeated references to foreigners with full bellies who have nothing to do but complain about China. And there, there was a video of his speech in Mexico, which was put online, but actually he gave this speech at a number of different places. And so even before he came to office, there was this sense in the foreign ministry that things were going to change. And if you think about him over the last year since 2012, he's been talking about how China is getting closer to the center of the world stage talking about the superiority of the Chinese system. And if you're a Chinese diplomat listening to those speeches, you're going to take cues from them and, and assume that you need to emulate him. One final piece of evidence is Keith Jai at Reuters wrote an excellent piece in which he, he showed that Xi Jinping had sent a handwritten note to the foreign ministry demanding fighting spirit. And you know anyone who's been paying attention since 2012 knows that Xi doesn't take kindly to any form of dissent. And uh, I don't know, if I received that note, I'd be terrified and I'd very, very quickly get on board with the program. So one of the major sources of information that you used in writing your book was the memoirs of uh, Chinese diplomats. And that's so interesting to me because most of them are, of course, in Chinese. I think very few have been translated into English. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the themes that are conveyed in these memoirs of, of retired diplomats and, and maybe share with us um, an interesting anecdote from one of them. <laughs> Unless you're looking to write a book, I don't necessarily recommend them as sort of leisure reading. They're quite, they're quite dull. But, you know, hidden among details of endless meetings and foreign trips and things, are these little moments which kind of illuminate things. Um, one of the things that I really took away from reading them was that for Chinese diplomats, there's almost no such thing as a low stakes engagement. Everything is high stakes. Emulating Henry Kissinger, people like to think of China as this long-term planner and you know everything's being done according to some great grand strategy. But when you read these memoirs, you realize that like, 
a trade fair in Papua New Guinea has displayed a Taiwanese flag in the wrong place and it's suddenly a total crisis for the whole embassy and these people write these incidents up in their memoirs as the kind of culmination of their whole career and you realize they're not thinking in the long term or strategically a lot of the time they're thinking about the incredible stakes that they attach to very very small tactical outcomes so that was one thing another thing which i found just really surprising and striking was in the 50s and 60s through to the 70s with the tail end of the cultural revolution just how embarrassed chinese diplomats say that they felt in having to lie to foreign counterparts about the great leap forward or to make up talking points on the spot about how the red guards were correct to you know smash up foreign ambassadors cars and you know imprison foreign diplomats and things like that and we I think that the foreign ministry and Chinese diplomats are very good at putting up this kind of united, unified, strong face when they need to go out and defend a policy. But it's it's easy to forget that beneath the surface, they, they may have the same doubts that we do. There's one particular sentence in your book that really struck me as interesting. So I want to read it and ask you about it. And, and that sentence is this. The system in China performs particularly badly at times of political tension, when Chinese diplomats find themselves more concerned with protecting themselves from charges of disloyalty than improving their country's reputation. So how then does the current political environment shape Chinese diplomacy? We know this year is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, and next year China is going to hold a critically important National Party Congress, where Xi Jinping is likely to get an unprecedented uh, third term as the general secretary of the party. So how will events like this affect Chinese diplomacy? In terms of the centenary celebrations, I think that the, the most likely thing is that we'll see this gap between messaging that would work well with foreign audiences and the messaging that the foreign ministry is actually putting out just continually widen. So I would expect, you know, as people watch Xi Jinping just continue to consolidate power, diplomats will increasingly be tempted to, you know, insert lavish praise of him in speeches and hand out copies of his book and talk about how he's contributed to the transformation of China. So I would expect to see more of that, just as we have since 2012. And broadly, frankly, a continued intense focus on domestic political audiences and not on foreigners. When you were in Beijing and were talking with Chinese experts and some of their research organizations, I wonder if they expressed any concerns about the direction of Chinese diplomacy and this sort of wolf warrior nature of it. Because when I've talked to Chinese experts about Xi Jinping's overall foreign policy, there are certainly some who think that um, China has overreached, that it abandoned Deng Xiaoping's sort of low profile or hydro capabilities by your time approach to, to foreign policy. And so were people willing to maybe subtly criticize this aggressive diplomacy and suggest that maybe it is not serving Chinese interests? I think that there are mixed feelings beneath the surface. Most people won't say it out loud. Yuan Nansheng, who is a thinker and a former Chinese diplomat, did write a series of pieces in which he expressed his reservations and said that he thought China was, was overreaching. 
I think in general, there is a shared consensus about the idea that something had to change. The idea that China is the second largest economy in the world just couldn't have the same foreign policy as it had adopted in the aftermath of Tiananmen. But there is significant disagreement about what exactly that change should look like and and what it means for a country to behave confidently. Does it mean, you know, shouting down other nations every time they disagree with you? Or does it mean leading and persuading others? So that's where I think some of the disagreement is. You know, in some ways, I think that the foreign ministry has had these two tendencies ever since 1949. There is this kind of Zhou Enlai approach where we'll we'll try to persuade others, we'll try to charm them. And you can see that a little bit today, I think, with people like uh, Tian Kai. In Washington, there is also this other approach, which tends to take over, especially when things are tense at home, which is all about, this is our position, this is where we stand, we will defend it, and you will accept it. And those will be the terms on which we engage. Those two things have always been in tension. And I think that latter tendency has been winning out in recent years. When you were doing research, did you talk to anybody who was involved in the preparations for the last foreign policy work conference? You know, these are usually held every five years and they're so important, I think, in laying down markers about the state of China's foreign policy, its objectives and the guidelines going forward. And the last one, I think, was 2017. We're probably due for another one uh, next year in, in, in 2022. But were you able to dig into the decision-making process regarding China's what they call foreign policy work? It's tricky. I actually think it's really quite interesting in China studies when you look at how much writing there was on the foreign policy decision-making process, 2010, 2012-ish. People like you, Bonnie, people like Linda Jacobson, Mike Lampton, and that stuff has kind of trailed off a little bit. And I think some of that is to do with the information environment in China. And some of it is to do with a slightly more simplified decision-making process, perhaps under Xi Jinping and a reassertion of centralized control. But honestly, that stuff is really hard to report on in Beijing. People tend not to want to share or elaborate. And I don't want to make things up. So <laughs> that's going to be the extent of my answer. <laughs> Do you have a sense as to whether the Chinese foreign ministry feels confident, thinks it scored a lot of successes in its diplomacy in recent years? Or do you think they view themselves as falling short? I think there are a lot of people who understand that the way that China has behaved has been counterproductive in recent years. I think that it's not something that's easy to say out loud in meetings. And there's an obvious counter argument that, that others in the system put up when people raise these shortcomings and they say, well, of, you know, of course, Britain and Australia would adopt tougher policies on China because that's what Trump demanded of them. And they are part of the US alliance system. And so things will change in the future when the US starts to behave differently. I think that China is going to find out very, very quickly that in fact, those changes in the attitudes of US allies and its regional neighbors are much more deep seated than it realizes and that that counter argument is not going to stand up. And so I, I wonder if at that moment, which may well be coming very soon, whether we'll see a bit more of a recalibration, although I'm not terribly optimistic that we're quite there yet. 
Well, that's the sort of last question I'd like to perhaps dig into just a little bit deeper is on the potential for recalibration by China. It seems to me that there's a debate among experts outside China who, who watch Chinese foreign policy and diplomacy. Some think that China will temper this wolf warrior type rhetoric and behavior now that the Biden administration has come to power and because China wants to stabilize its relations with the United States. Others think that this is just an integral part of Xi Jinping's agenda and the way that he approaches foreign policy, that he is more risk acceptant than his predecessor, Hu Jintao, and that also the wolf warrior diplomacy is intended primarily for the domestic audience, not really the, the foreign audience. So do you expect that there will be any changes in the style or the substance of Chinese diplomacy now that the Biden administration is in power and due to some of this perhaps recognition in China that, as you say, there to some extent has been counterproductive impact on Chinese interests abroad? Yeah, I, I tend to think that it will be a short term kind of tactical recalibration that we'll see. You can you can see it a little bit already. You know, Wang Yi gave a speech to the Asia Society recently in which he sort of laid out a framework for how he thought that US-China relations might improve. And the foreign ministry statements in the last couple of days, as President Biden has has come to office, have been quite soft compared to some of the language that we saw under Trump. But ultimately, Biden is going to work with allies in a way that Beijing will find fundamentally threatening. And when he does, and when there is pushback, Beijing won't like it. And I think we'll probably see some wolf warrior tactics in response. Second, you know, China's going to find out that, or China, you know, it's going to be confirmed that this wasn't just Trump. There are now deep bipartisan roots in Washington. And there's, a, there's this sort of new baseline for a tougher China policy. That's not going to change. And they're, they're going to realize that within that, criticisms of China's human rights practices in Xinjiang, for example, turn out not just to be a stick with which to beat China or a negotiating tactic, but that people in the United States have very deep-seated feelings about this issue. So that's going to upset them. And I think they'll respond in a prickly way. And as you say, like Washington is only one factor which influences the tone of Chinese diplomacy. I think, I think more than that, Chinese diplomats rightly believe that Xi Jinping seeks a more assertive, self-confident stance and posture for China on the world stage. And as long as he's in charge, they're going to seek to implement that for him and make his vision a reality. So I think that the short to medium term, wolf warriors are here to stay. I think that you are right, and it will be a challenge for many countries, I think, uh, going forward. We've been talking with Peter Martin, who is a political reporter for Bloomberg News, and he has a new book that is coming out in April called China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Thanks, Bonnie.